0: Circus workers had become determined with the circus being more than a workplace. It was their home. It's where their families sometimes were with them, it's where they rested their head at night, it's where they ate dinner. It's where they relaxed after work. It's also where they did their laundry. Yet this form of paternalism created noticeable gaps in employee protection, which set the stage for the rise of unions and benevolent societies on the circus lot.
1: Hi, and welcome to Labor History Today there was always something about the circus that bothered me maybe because by the time i saw it in the 1970s the greatest show on earth was reduced to playing in sports stadiums and arenas a shadow of the glory days when towns and even cities declared circus day closed down so everyone could go gawk at the spectacle of acrobatic performers wild animals and creepy sideshows but now Thanks to Andrea Ringer, I know that it was the class struggle lurking right there in plain sight, just beneath the big top, the spangles, and sequins. As Ringer explains in today's show, the circus was a highly transient workplace with a long history of exploiting its workers. And in a fascinating Zoom talk last month, she examined the life and work of the people who labored in tented shows during the circus golden age from the 1880s until the late 1950s. Andrea Ringer is assistant professor of history at Tennessee State University. Her talk, Save the Circus, Workers Strike, Circus Goers, and the Mid-20th Century Decline of the Big Top, was part of the Our Daily Work, Our Daily Lives Brown Bag series sponsored by the Michigan Traditional Arts Program and the labor education program at MSU's School of Human Resources and Labor Relations. And on today's Labor History in Two.
2: The year was 1970. That was
1: the day that
2: Minneapolis Teachers Union Local 59 went out on strike.
1: I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. Here's John Beck, who organizes the Our Daily Work, Our Daily Lives Brown Bag series.
3: Andrea Ringer is an assistant professor of history at Tennessee State University. Her current book project, titled Circus World, Transnational Labor and Performance, will be published in the Working Class in American History series with the University of Illinois Press. This project comes out of her dissertation written at the University of Memphis, She also has a master's degree in public history from the University of Arkansas, Little Rock, and received her undergraduate degree from Texas A&M University. Her work focuses on interspecies workplaces, and she also has several articles and book chapters coming out later this year on the history of labor in U.S. zoos. Her talk today, Save the Circus, Worker Strikes, Circus Goers, and the Mid-20th Century Decline of the Big Top, uses a series of strikes in the 1930s to frame union formation and worker identity in the tented shows. So with that, Andrea, let me turn it over to you. Welcome to our Daily Worker Daily Lives.
0: Thank you, John, for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, Circus World examines a circus as a workplace during the Golden Age from the 1870s through about the 1960s. It's not focused on any one particular circus. Instead, it considers the entire circus world, which was the wider collection of traveling shows on rails, wagons, steamboats, and cars each year. Behind the scenes, practices in the circus world resembled other companies in the corporate landscape. But as a workplace, it also operated much like a mobile company town, with systems that financially tethered employees to their employer, their paternalistic policies offered room and board rather than pay. Workers also labored and lived in the same space, this blurred lines of work and home life. Circus workers' identification with their own class status was always in tension with their loyalty to the close-knit circus community, which was created and fostered by the circus's constant traveling. Yet this form um, of paternalism created noticeable gaps in employee protection, which set the stage for the rise of unions and benevolent societies on the circus lot, which is what I'll talk about today. Workers referred to their work and home as the literal circus world, and they often spoke inclusively of the space, This all-encompassing identification, which they shared with folks um, often across race, class, and gender lines, created an identity politics that informed what labor activism could look like in their workplace. My project investigates how circus workers, this is a group of adults, children, and animals from around the world, understood their own labor. The book also questions how the circus operated as both an American corporation and a transnational work site and one of the most diverse workforces in the world. By placing a global perspective on the entertainment that often built itself as American, this project can understand how workers coming from around the world brought ideas of labor, organizing, and social structures into the circus. The circus was a space where so many performers were so famous, right? We're dealing with uh, high-paid performers, and yet the majority of people on the lot, uh, they outnumbered big top performers three to one, were manual laborers. They're also very transient, they would go in between shows, they would um, not stay an entire season, they would jump between seasons, between shows, between other um, entertainment venues and stages. So my book charts the history of the circus from its rise through the decline by using a labor history. There are all sorts of labor practices and protests I examine within that change. So there are strikes, union formations, animal activism, child labor laws that shift. The disability rights movement, also there's decolonization happening, and that has an immense impact on the circus and their ability to get particular workers, people, and animals from colonized spaces. So the book is raising sort of broad questions, um, like what is work and who is a worker? And it's through expansive answers to those that I'm able to incorporate different kinds of labor history, like the labor of raising a family on the circus lot, the labor of training animals on these lots, the labor of just hawking postcards and others sort were of trinkets for extra income, which workers did. But today I'm going to focus on the impact of a series of AFL-affiliated union work and strikes in the 1930s. And in my book, I use the strikes in a chapter that instead focuses on circus audiences, particularly working class union-affiliated circus audiences, um, to get at how they understood their entertainment as also being a side of labor. But circus workers had to come to terms with the circus being more than a workplace. It was their home. It's where their families sometimes were with them, where they rested their head at night. It's where they ate dinner. It's where they relaxed after work. It's also where they did their laundry. And so all of these sorts of things not only were done on the circus train as it moved between cities each day, but also in these spaces, which was called the backyard. So you had the big top tent. You had the, the side show tent, the areas where circus goers were expected to walk around in between shows. And then behind all of that, you had what was called the backyard. And this is where circus workers lived most of their day. You had some animals, as you can see, this elephant that were dressed for the show. There are horses with the show that were just there to do manual labor. So those horses would be back there as with Liberty horses and kind of these big top horses as well. This gives you an idea of just how busy that backyard space could be. So this is right before the opening spec, which every employee, even manual laborers, sometimes would be in the opening spec to, to work it. So they're all gathered in the backyard waiting to go in the big top. So this is how busy that could be. Wild West shows often travel with circuses. When you see um, these teepees, when you see camels, right? These are the sorts of things you would see back there as well. And again, it gives you an idea um, of just the diversity of different kinds of workers and work being done back there. So crowds, circus goers seem to constantly want glimpses of this space, right? This is a space that in theory would be outside the public eye, but it never was. So even though it wasn't part of the ticketed performance, no one bought tickets to see the backyard, it did become part of the circus experience. This is also where audiences learned to interact with the shows, which acted as a sort of democratic amusement. And this will have implications for a decline that I'll talk about later today. Oh, here's an image of circus workers doing laundry, right, in the backyard in between shows. So we So Again, we get this everyday life feel going on during during the show. So as a show would arrive in the city, this cook tent would be one of the first things put up because they're immediately preparing food for workers. You didn't buy a ticket to do any of these things, and yet you could do all these things. We have children gathered at the train to touch the elephant, feed the elephant. They would stick its trunk out. And this, the arrival of the train was the start of the circus performance. In the, the middle one, this was called sidewalling. The kids um, had memories, people had memories as children of, trying to get glimpses of the show underneath the tent. And then we we have kids who are, again, just like milling around the circus lot and just seeing what they can see. So all of this was happening. This was a workplace where room and board and food sometimes replaced paychecks. It was a workplace also where management was eating in those same dining tents, where they rode those same rails the entire season. And so this only further entrenched circus paternalism. But that paternalism went beyond living necessities. The circus found ways to recirculate money through regulated leisure, like gambling. It added to the endless cycle of empty pockets on payday. Many workers took advanced, advantage of the advanced pay system, which, of course, docked their own pay overall. A performer, Lenorma Fox, in her memoir, understood the benefits of this and said that, quote, this way, it made them broke all the time so they couldn't leave the show. Yet the circus was also a really cosmopolitan workforce. Workers hailed from all over the world in this mobile workspace. It was also highly networked with other traveling shows, with affiliated industries like animal trapping in Africa or, the, or printing in New York City. And the mobility of the circus itself meant that it was connected to national and international events. The Allied blockade during World War I drastically cut into the animal trade business, for example, cornered sort of by Carl Hagenbeck in Germany. The war also created the first major labor vacuum for shows as folks went off to serve. The Sells' Flodo show lost more than 100 workers one season that went to go enlist. This lost labor nearly crippled the show. The John Robinson Circus proudly claimed most of its laborers had served in World War I after it was over, and they gladly welcomed back animal handlers and roustabouts. The war also left a shortage of land, so this also was a way that, that these events affected circus labor. Circus agent E.P. Wiley remembered contracting out a private residence for workers during a California show because most of the lot had been reserved for Victory Gardens. And although he reco- uh, recalled that circus horses trampled through manicured gardens during that show, he compensated families for $15 and 10 free tickets. Local events also impacted shows as circus moved into a new town. Whatever was happening often affected ticket sales and what performances looked like. Circus management, after all, always loved pandering to local audiences. As the Ringling Brothers shows, pulled into Los Angeles in the final months of its tour in 1912, for example, it entered a politically charged arena that was weeks away from deciding a measure that would give women the right to vote. Women activists in Los Angeles have been campaigning in immigrant neighborhoods and holding tea parties with elite women in an effort to attract supporters and members. The popularity of the circus offered a unique platform for Los Angeles activists to continue their campaign. So as the circus began its parade, which it did uh, as it, as the train arrived, there would be a parade to the lot. Um, so at the 9 a.m. parade, they included a brightly colored banner that said Votes for Women that hung around the, the lead elephant's neck during her usual procession. So although this politicized Walk of the Elephant is an early example of activism in the circus parade and support for the women's suffrage movement, it wasn't the last example of either Women continued to be a visible presence on the lot, and as activists, and the Barnum Show created this, called the Barnum Suffragettes, and continued toward that campaign. It boasted more than 800 members. But for workers, this was part of being socially conscious. It was part of being politically active. It affected the way they saw their own work. Josie DeMott, a famous equestrian, was part of this Votes for Women campaign in the circus. She remembered her time in the movement. She remembered being in the parade, and she said, while I wrote Comet, I waved my suffrage banner with a firm hand and high arm. So part of what I explored leading up to the strikes um, is the way that mobility was both an advantage and hindrance for workers. Labor activism remained a constant part of the circus world, but it occurred on the term of the workers in ways that acknowledged um, both the challenges and advantages of being part of this workspace. They did so by making demands that went well beyond bread and butter issues. So I want to show you this circus management knew how to counter or learned, I should say, how to counter worker activism. So they created blacklists. Uh, This is a blacklist in 1901 of the Ringling show, for example. So they are literally blacklisting certain workers. So whereas we see workers going between different circuses, right? We also see these sort of documents circulating um, between circus management and different shows. They also Mm -hmm. circus management also attempted um, to hire scabs as well, for example, They also engaged in what was called red lighting. So red lighting is when a show would leave employees behind. And so this worker is talking about his experience being redlined and that he wasn't green. He was, he had been with the show for a while. So he knew this was about to happen. And he saw newer workers get duped by this a little bit earlier. So these sorts of things were happening too. So could workers pick up and just move to a new show with their unique skill sets of taming lions or setting up tents? They could, and they did. This is why the first benevolent societies in the circus, which was formed in, in the Barnum unit, opened membership to anyone in the circus world. So on September 24th, 1903, the Barnum and Bailey Circus struck a tent for Bridgeport. Three workers that day went and filed a charter with the state of Connecticut to gain legal acknowledgement of the benevolent order of the American Tigers. They had unofficially formed on the European tour. That European tour also had labor strikes as well. So the two-page charter contains just three articles. They identified the group as the typical fraternal organization or benefit society to support the social and material welfare of its members. They created funds for burial, disability benefits, they began officiating funeral, uh, funerals for their members. In 1905, just two years after the formation, the organization boasted nearly 3,000 members, with men from almost every uh, department represented, including high-ranking performers. They also included women among their ranks as well. By 1905, several fraternal organizations and unions had formed alongside the Tigers. Sideshow workers took advantage of this, of the benefits and the membership in in the Tigers, but they also formed their own group called the Protective Order of the Prodigies. It was dubbed the Freak Union by the press. So what I find most interesting about this. So on the left, this is a, an article from 1907, which is talking about this new quote unquote freaks union that just like the Tigers is not just in the Barnum show, but it opened up membership to anyone in the circus world could join this organization. And yet the article on the right is from 1930. Folks who are uh, the press who are nervous, circus goers who are nervous about the sideshow, perhaps unionizing and if the sideshow unionizes everyone's going to unionize when in reality the sideshow had been one of, the, one of the first organizations or groups to unionize in the circus the new united group of sideshow performers continued to protest the circus marketing of the term freak which again the press's use of freaks union right is something to to hone in on as well they call themselves the prodigies instead but the prodigies also offered real union benefits they presented a united front to sideshow managers. They demanded higher salaries. So this is in the early 20th century. So the high profile work of circus performers often stood in stark contrast to the show's working class, the laborers, but their labor didn't escape the audience's eyes. Regularly described as the greatest performance, working men were also the object of public gaze. So when the circus pulled into town on nearly 100 rail cars in the bigger shows, People lined the tracks in the empty lot to watch that free performance, rendered by low-wage working people, as they quickly unloaded equipment and animals and set up the tented city. The labor of the working um, men often attracted equal numbers of people as the big-top performances, and together, for audiences, this constituted the circus experience. So we have another one here of elephants being unloaded. So although the circus famously attracted all walks of life as a mass culture entertainment, it was often billed as working class. During its peak years, the circus could attract this audience because entire towns, literally entire towns, would shut down for the show. Circus Day became a holiday for working-class patrons. If factories did not recognize the custom, they'd face a potential walkout from workers. Um, Unlike legitimate theater, circus tickets were fairly affordable, and upper-class patrons were less likely to enjoy a performance in a sawdust ring. For those who could not afford the ticket, this gratis performance, um, attended by thousands, still provided that circus experience. Uh, Though the strong association with working class forms of entertainment, the circus maintained an internal circus subculture that workers continued to rally around. Every member of the circus was part of what they called the circus world. Workers proudly claimed to have run away and joined the shows um, as uncontracted laborers before working their way up to more permanent jobs. They spoke about the importance of every worker on the lot. Circus workers noted that for the workplace to function efficiently, every person had to operate within a common good mindset. As former circus worker Al Pretty wrote, the circus demands um, of us and has a right to expect from us 100% of our time, of our thought, of our energy. In the circus organization, there is no place for the individual. He went on to describe, quote, highly paid executives and performers working along roustabouts when needed. Every labor dispute on the circus in the circus world, including those by working men who double grass performers, affected the shows in profound ways. So as the Tigers and the Prodigies began formally organizing in the circus world, Barnum's canvasmen also went on strike. So it's the workers who are literally putting up the big top tent. So in this watershed moment in circus labor history, because both workers and management learned how to leverage particular advantages. So this is how it happened. Two months into a long circus season, the canvasmen organized internally and they refused to work, citing the dire need for a pay increase. The long history of non-payment and, and also inadequate wages in the circus um, hadn't resulted in, in a mass resistance prior to this, prior to 1903. So the canvasmen employed at the Barnum Show announced a strategic plan of attack to get their wage increased. Half of the department, this was 150 people, went on strike as the circus prepared for its Washington, D.C. opening on May 12th. And this is um, referencing that May 12th opening. Though the reduction in laborers was not paralyzing, it caused a two-hour delay. The workers then upped the ante, giving the circus one day to meet their wage demands and and to avoid a strike by the entire department the next night at the Baltimore show. Unwilling to negotiate, the circus continued forward without any indication that they would meet the demand of the workers. Upon receiving the original raise request, the circus immediately advertised for replacement workers. Nearly 100 men responded and they were promptly mobilized. These scab laborers, however, lacked the experienced oversight of the strikers or the pre-existing knowledge of of how to put up a circus tent. They were subsequently labeled too green to fill the striker's position. The remaining dates in the season, the 1903 season, were marked with ongoing labor disputes. The circus continued to operate short of these workers, and by July, the number of strikers had doubled to nearly 300. Without a reliable source of labor, the circus pressed performers to work these jobs when necessary. Aside from the occasional canceled performance or parade, the the show did remain financially successful and it did fill seats. So even though the strikes didn't debilitate the circus in 1903, both the management and its labor force learned important lessons. The management underestimated the skill of the working class. The working class overestimated their financial necessity to a larger larger show. The strikes uh, showed showed the management, sorry, the scabs were an inefficient shield in the circus. Even with the seemingly unskilled work that had to be done, it has to be done very quickly and efficiently. Owner James Bailey, his response to the strikes in 1903 also effectively showed the circus's trump card. Two weeks after the first 150 men walked out, he declared that he preferred to take the entire show back to the winter quarters and just cancel the season rather than negotiate with the workers. But that year, the continued success of the season meant that Bailey never had to act on that threat. So despite the ability of the Tigers, the prodigies, the canvassmen to rally many circus workers together, early attempts to unionize them by outside organizing often failed. So for example, the White Rats, an AFL affiliated union in 1900, attempted to unionize a large swath of performers in the early 20th century. So these attempts and failures, their attempts and failures in vaudeville are more famous, but they also approach the circus and have little success. They proved unable to tap into the circus world identity. The rats were exclusive in terms of race and gender, which wasn't always conducive to the established organizing tradition of the circus. The Puff Club, established in 1901, served as a minor and short-lived exception. This was an organization of clowns, which was already generally a gender-exclusive job. They modeled their own organization on the exclusivity of the rats and touted themselves as as, quote, the royal blood of clowns.
1: We'll be back with Andrea Ringer's fascinating look at circus workers in just a moment after this week's Labor History in Two.
0: I'm
2: Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1970. That was the day that Minneapolis Teachers Union Local 59 went out on strike. They took the vote to strike, despite the fact that state law prohibited teachers from striking. But after months of negotiations that went nowhere, the teachers decided it was time to act. The main issue for the strike was wages. One teacher, George Kimball, recalled why he had supported the strike, stating, The wages were so low. I had five children at the time, and we could barely survive. We couldn't take it anymore. The strike lasted 14 days. The teachers did not win the gains they hoped for with their work action. But their strike drew public attention to the lack of bargaining rights for public sector workers. The next year, Minnesota Governor Wendell Anderson signed into law the Public Employees Labor Relations Act. This act granted public sector workers the right to collective bargaining. The Minneapolis teacher strike played a key role in Minnesota's public sector workers gaining the fundamental right of union representation. The 1960s and 70s saw a wave of teacher strikes across the nation as educators stood up for themselves as workers. Across the country, there were more than 1,000 teacher strikes between 1960 and 1974. More than three quarters quarters of a million teachers walked out of the classroom and onto the picket lines. By the end of the 1970s, more than 70% of public school teachers were covered by collective bargaining agreements. For teachers concerned about class size, pensions, wages, school safety, and the quality of education, the strike remains an important way to build solidarity and to show the power of our nation's educators.
1: Back now with the rest of Andrea Ringer's fascinating look at the life and work of the men, women, animals, and unions that she found under the circus Big Top.
0: So while workers' identities remained rooted in the 19th century and the idea of a circus world that they had created, their workplace was rapidly changing as the circus continued to practice horizontal integration with mergers. Workers slowly became aware of its effects. In 1909, after several smaller circus mergers brought the whole circus world to an almost monopoly, the clowns were the first employees to recognize loss of job security. They directly cited circus consolidation with their falling wages in their attempt to unionize. The working class, however, initially didn't openly say that they noticed responses at the top, especially because Ringling allowed these shows to run independently with their established names and acts. The final significant merger of circus powers occurred um, in 1929. This is when the last Ringling Brother, John, purchased the uh, American Circus Corporation. This had been formed by smaller outfits as a means of protection against the more powerful Ringling Brothers. But when the American Circus Corporation got the Madison Square Garden spot for the opening, rather than compete with him, with them, John Ringling just bought them out. This was in 1929. He took out a loan in 1929, $1.8 million to make this purchase. And then just a few months later, the stock market crashed. This meant that the circus was in, in financial straits for the rest forever after that, really. So this is an important story about, this is important for the AFL because after John Ringling bought the American Circus Corporation, that meant that every circus was now under the banner of Ringling. So whereas before workers had some ability, had some mobility between shows, they could leave the Ringling show and they could go to the four-paw show or the sales photo show. That mobility disappeared with this merger. Everything was under Ringling. So these rapid changes at to the top were crumbling the circus's reputation by the 1930s. There was also a new outside financial control of the show. This was Sam Gumpertz. He was famous for his management of Dreamland Amusement Park, but he was an outsider to the circus when he took the reins in 1933. He had an astute business sense, there was an improving economy, so there were significant profits and record-breaking crowds during these years. But in 1937, John Ringling North and his brother Henry, they were estranged nephews of the Ringling brothers, capitalized on their name. They usurped the rest of the Ringling family and Gumperts for full ownership of the business. North's inclusion in the circus world was immediately questioned by circus fans. North was a Yale graduate. He was accused of being too collegiate. He added the Ringling name to the end of his last name just to to tie himself into it because of all this this questioning. So just prior to this takeover by North, Gumperts had signed an unprecedented five year closed shop agreement with the American Federation of Actors. With this new pact, more than 1400 employees in 17 different departments were suddenly brought under the umbrella of organized labor. The union immediately raised wages, one extra dollar per day for the working people. The AFL secretary, Ralph Whitehead, predicted that the entire circus field would be well organized prior to the opening of the 1938 season. So the new union deals fundamentally changed labor practices for the circus, which had been built on the backs of cheap labor. Despite the newly regulated salary of $60 per month for the rouseabouts, North maintained a paternalistic grip on the workers and reduced their salaries during the opening stand at Madison Square Garden, citing that they have less daily work than they would on the road. The arbitration failed between North and Whitehead and the AFL leader announced a strike by his newly unionized workers. With the growing tension in the workplace and the crumbling circus world identity and ownership, many circus workers grasped new opportunities and for the first time they were willing to embrace the help of outside labor. So on April 12th, 1938, The Ringling Show was the self-proclaimed greatest show on earth. It had spent thousands of dollars in the off season modernizing its appearance. And yet in the ring, it was reduced to what looked like a dog and pony show. Hundreds of Ringling employees refused to work that day, tacitly proclaiming their allegiance to the AFL. Unwilling to cancel the performance, North provided a substantially abbreviated show. The large animals remained caged behind the stage while their handlers held the picket line. The audience witnessed sideshow acts, high-paid performers, clowns, and management scrambling to produce something that resembled a Ringling show. In a desperate attempt to have at least one awe-inspiring animal in the show, John and Henry North personally wheeled Gargantua the gorilla, complete with this new air-conditioned cage, into center stage. The audience had eagerly anticipated Frank Buck, who was this archetypal white conqueror of of Africa, to appear and earn his $1,000 a week paycheck as he rode into the center ring on his hunting elephant. But the crowd cheered upon seeing him, but the strike of the elephant handlers had disrupted the performance. So instead, um, he just walked around the ring without his Mm -hmm. elephant. So this was the first show of the season and it showed that the success of the circus rested on these striking workers. So drawing on previous instances um, labor unrest, North insisted that the show must go on. So he made a series of makeshift negotiations. These were between North and Whitehead. They provided another two months of shows, both sides constantly grumbling. Um, as the show pulled into Toledo, Ohio, the Teamsters, which were the workers who drove the horses during the manual setup, refused to work. North called the situation a disguised blessing. He made no attempt to patronize the strikers. Instead, he bought 18 Caterpillar tractors to replace the 300 horses that have, had provided much of the labor during the setup. So by officially mechanizing the tent setup, North made the public performance of the Teamsters completely obsolete. The horses who had been accompanying the show just for this performance were suddenly sent to winter quarters and then sold off. So in an effort to offset the public outcry against the sudden mechanization, North then decided to set up a horse tent next to the big top so the public could just see horses um, in their pen. But no longer could spectators watch the literal horsepower on display while setting up the tents. So at this point, battle lines were clearly drawn between circus management led by North and organized labor under Whitehead, with circus employees being divided between the two. So those apo- opposed to organized labor emphasized both their loyalty to the circus and their preference for circus paternalism. So Frank Buck, who I mentioned earlier, he didn't join the picket line, even though it called for all circus employees. He claimed that he was, quote, a scientist, not an actor. So somehow he didn't belong um, in this strike. He said, don't get me wrong, I'm with the working man, I worked like a dog once myself, and my heart goes out with the fellow who works, but I don't want some union delegate telling me when to get on and off my elephant. Other workers also remain loyal to the circus, praising its paternalism. As one said, we don't see why we should pay dues to an organization that spends it unnecessarily on strikes against the show, that feeds us, pays us, and keeps us through the season. So the best way to undermine a striking circus worker was to show that they weren't loyal to the larger circus world. Performers did this. They grew frustrated with laborers, who, again, had outnumbered performers three to one. So they responded by mockingly accepting a pay cut that had started the labor dispute. Frank Buck publicly announced that he would accept a 75 percent wage increase, but this is dropping a salary still to hundreds of dollars a week. In addition, an unofficial petition circulated on the circus grounds. With more than 200 performer signatures endorsing a personal wage cut so at that point the strikers who had refused even small pay cuts looked like outsiders who didn't understand what it took to put on um, a show in the circus world so as the circus continued toward the east coast followed by the afl um, the afl privately wrote to north they informed him that to implement his requested 25 percent wage cut he would have to hang a sign and get approval from the employees so he hung an inconspicuous little piece of paper. He received no protests, And he took that as an immediate sign that workers would side with the show. He immediately thanked the employees and dropped their wages. So in addition to that and bad weather and low attendance and occasional worker sabotage, this is what characterized the shows as it came through the upper Midwest. So as workers showed um, allegiance to Whitehead or grumbled about the pay cut, North would just release them. So he was losing workers along the way as well. When the circus reached Scranton, Pennsylvania, um, the dispute snowballed into an intense showdown between the already powerful circus and the incredibly uh, increasingly assertive workforce. So the workers set up the tents and then they immediately joined Whitehead for the final strike of the season. Although the tents did not show any performances, the lot became a stage for the swarming media. Reaching back to tactics first solidified in 1903 with Bailey North bypassed scabs as a potential labor source and instead threatened to shut down the entire circus if the striking workers were not in position for the show that afternoon. Whitehead and strikers borrowed from recently successful strikes in the automobile industry and they staged a sit-in. The law was at a standstill for five days as workers protested and Whitehead waited for the public payoff of back wages and union dues. To the dismay of fans and nearly every employee, the Ringling Show instead loaded back onto the train and began its long journey back to the winter quarters in Sarasota, Florida. In the more updated version of what I talked about earlier with red lighting, where they left employees, the circus rolled out of Scranton and into Sarasota without every without the employees who had sided with Whitehead. So the labor strife um, affected management, performers, and were and manual laborers in vastly different ways. So although a shortened season did affect overall profits, North was able to recoup a substantial amount of money because he owned most of the circus industry. So rather than pack up the ringling equipment and store it to the next season, he sent it off to other circuses who were still touring. Through this sly maneuver, North enlarged the other outfits and made substantially more money from them than he would have otherwise. He also had Gargantua the gorilla. Complete with this entire fabricated backstory of capture in the West African jungle, Gargantua had been generating um, a substantial amount of press since his first showing in 1937. So shortly after bringing the circus back to the winter quarters, North um, hurried to Europe with Gargantua and toured there. Other performers also had outlets, the Christianis, Frank Buck, Terrell Jacobs, they all continued their season with the A.G. Barnes show. I also have this invoice, this is from the University of Memphis Archives, and this invoice is for after the Ringling Show shuts down in 1938, it goes back to the winter quarters, this is what it sends to the barn show. It substantially increases the number of animals touring with the barn circus. So through the course of the strikes, Ringling North is talking to the barn circus as well. And what's interesting is Barnes clearly is worried about labor too, right? So even though this isn't part of the narrative and the newspapers and it's all focused on wrangling in the barn show there is some worry about labor happening there as well. So uh, the abbreviated season, this had the most detrimental effect on laborers, particularly those who had picketed. So seasoned workers, a smaller number of them, stayed with the circus as a skeleton crew in the winter quarters in Sarasota. They tended to the animals, they fixed equipment. Their pay was heavily reduced during this month, these months though. But the surplus workforce that had been accused of causing labor trouble, they were just out of a job. And when when the circus shut down, because the Ringling outfit had bought up nearly the entire industry, workers didn't have the same access to mobility that they had 50 years prior. Okay, so back to audiences during this time. So the middle class circus goers, they were shocked at the shortened season. They quickly aligned against labor, as you might guess. They created a save our circus movement. It drew a substantial following. Despite rapidly shifting business practices in the circus and North's increased mechanization, particularly in response to the strikes, these middle-class circus fans blamed, quote, labor promoters for corrupting the circus world because the strikers had, quote, the best of everything, accommodations, food, hospitalization, the lowliest working man to the highest plague performer. Because of that, they felt that workers owed their loyalty to performers. So, Whitehead, who was a proxy for organized labor, was demonized for infiltrating the circus and uh, rousing these lowly workers. People thought that the foolish workers had learned to side with outside labor, and this was that meant that they were losing the paternalistic protection of the circus. This also highlighted the class divisions within the circus world. Harry Hertzberg, he was a wealthy Texas lawyer and a state senator. He also doubled as the president of the Circus Fans Association. He aligned circus goers against the working class labor organizing who had ended the season early when he announced that, quote, we fight anything that fights the circus. The press seemed to agree for the most part that the circus working class had been duped. So moving into the next season, 1939, fans saw the return of the big top. So touting the circus as modern and mechanized North claimed that with all due respect to my uncles, we couldn't go on the same way. So he began to modernize the entire show. So this meant streamlining what the tent looked like. This meant air conditioning the tent. Although middle-class circus fans saw North as a visionary, much of the public, including working class circus goers did not. The largest change during this time was the relationship with organized labor. North announced open shop agreements, the acceptance of a 25% pay cut he had insisted on the previous season and a strict one-year contract with the AFL. The season continued without any lingering tension from the 1938 disputes um, or involvement of the AFL. The strikes had shown the devastating effect of siding um, against the returnalistic employer. However, the substantial failure from the previous season did not mean that there was a politically inactive labor force. Workers now fall back to earlier circus world identities, and they requested their own AFL charter uh, because they believed that they could represent themselves better. Fully endorsed by circus management as a means to escape a relationship with outside labor, the American Federation of Outdoor and Indoor Circus and Carnival Workers formed almost immediately after the strikes and boasted more than 800 members. The new union accepted all circus workers, except those who had participated in the recent strike. So moving into the 1940 season, Ringling Brothers opened again, and circus workers again passed Ralph Whitehead as they went into Madison Square Garden, but the picket line looked radically different than it had in 1938, when most of the working force had left their daily jobs as tent state drivers and animal handlers to boycott Ringling's labor practices. Instead, the opening show for 1940 was executed with a full cast of performers and workers. Not a single worker held the picket line with Whitehead. The protest was so unassuming that Matthew Wool, the the vice president of AFL, accidentally crossed the picket line, claiming he didn't see it. Pro-labor newspapers had covered the 1938 strikes extensively, but in 1940, they were noticeably silent. Out of more than a 1,000 employees, not a single worker missed their cue in the show. Despite the increasingly tenuous predicament of circus labor, the way that the 1938 strike ended with a shortened season catapulted many of the workers back onto the side of paternalistic circus management. The crowd also ignored the protests as they hurried to their seats. They wanted to see new acts like Indo the Siberian leopard who had just recently mauled their trainer. So the public response to the picket line was looking different during that season as well. Circus goers realigned with their working class identity and found contention between their identity and their side of entertainment. Whitehead took a new tactic. He began a letter campaign to local unions on the circus route with a working class patron base that was becoming increasingly alienated by the big top show which was looking and feeling out of place, the circus faced uh, an even larger threat to its business. So North received dozens of letters during the 1940 season. Um, The most troubling ones for him came from labor unions who had a larger stake in the show. North embarked on his own letter writing campaign to dissuade the printing press union from refusing to make posters, from dissuading the laundromat union from refusing to clean costumes. So suddenly the horizontal integration practices of the 19th century had left the circus dependent um, on outside contracted labor. So as it became a modern corporation, the circus had always had the advantage management uh, in worker negotiations through the threat or the implementation of mechanization. The next two decades were punctuated by smaller labor disputes that didn't have the same force to disrupt or close the show, even with the presence of outside labor organizing. The circus continued to respond to each of these threats by replacing workers with machinery or replacing them with technology. So for example, when the big top band announced a strike for higher wages in 1942, just a few years later, the circus musicians that still fell under the protection of the AFL affiliated union who called for the strike acknowledged their um, allegiance to the show. Band leader Merle Evans who had been with the show since 1919 said, we wanted to play today but their union refused to let us. North reacted swiftly without conceding to the requests of the strikers. Rather than agree to higher wages or hiring replacement musicians, he just switched to pre-recorded music. The laborers also fought several times for higher wages, but they no longer belonged to this larger network of organized labor. So this time the unrest re- received little media attention and it was handled internally. So following the first few years under North, the circus quickly became a modern corporation. North notice, noticeably withdrew from the circus world and he was much more likely to be spotted in a New York uh, City club. So no longer at this point did the entire circus workforce including the owner ride on the rails during the season. This meant that circus paternalism began to fade and the circus became more like other modern workplaces. They had shifted the more removed policies of corporate welfare capitalism. North created Ringling Enterprises. He hired executives who were not part of the circus world um, to sit in boardrooms. By the time labor, uh, organized labor got a foothold in the circus again in 1956, the entertainment giant was vastly different. Negotiations, letters, and public statements. They were coming from executives and boardrooms rather than the owner who was with the circus on the rails. As the show entered its season nearly 20 years after Whitehead first held that picket line, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters aggressively protested ringling shows. They used boycotting techniques in previous decades that worked in the circus, but this time they had very little success. So in 1956, the Big Top folded. Ringling announced he would no longer be going on the road, on trains with the Big Top, and yet instead they would be performing inside stadiums. This decision came in the midst of changing entertainment options for the public. The circus was no longer the most exciting or most accessible form of leisure. Towns no longer shut down to see parades of performers and animals. The entire golden age had ended. So I'm arguing that the most influential factor that precipitated this change was labor. Going back to the first strike I talked about in 1903, um, when faced with labor problems, the circus was resigned to empty threats. They had no means to really change the labor system. They couldn't hire skilled workers. They couldn't really shut down the season early and they couldn't mechanize workers out of existence. But mechanization became the circus's scab labor force. So The threat of closure in 1903 and then the implementation of that threat by 1938 solidified a highly successful tactic in dealing with these workforces, transient workforces. By 1938, the circus mechanized nearly every worker strike. They avoided messy relationships with labor organizers. If workers attempted to outmaneuver circus management, particularly with the help of the AFL, managers responded by refusing to negotiate and enacting changes to the structure of their workplace instead. Workers continued to live and work in the circus world, but that world shifted from overt paternalism to more formal policies toward the mid-20th century. So these changes in the circus labor and circus management created unsustainable tensions for the working-class audience. On the one hand, working-class jobs within the circus became more obsolete. That meant the circus became perhaps less appealing to audiences, the massive cultural power of the circus during its golden age, which had shut down towns, easily drew in the working class. The gratis performance, that free performance, preparing the lot, a bit of the train arriving, arriving, of setting up tents. This was an intrinsic part of the show. So people clamored to see their favorite animal in the big top, donning feathered headdresses and, and everything, like we saw the elephant wearing. But they also wanted to see that same elephant in a harness, pulling those tents into place. The public noticed when workers faced mechanization replacement and their labor became untangled from that larger circus performance. So the public actually voiced that awareness of mechanization and its associated tensions. They noted that quote, the rouseabouts have a high contempt for the gasoline mule chugging along and in the corner of the lot. So as these jobs vanished, along with the free performance that drew in the working class patrons, so did that special allure of the circus. But on the other hand, the strikers also put circus goers in an untenable position in relation to their own unions. The outpouring of union letters sent to North, as well as the threat of lost patronage by both unions and circus fans, showed the immense vulnerability this industry could face if they cross-organized labor. This was particularly true of the circus, which embodied working-class entertainment. The circus had created a working-class base of patrons, but then it alienated that working-class base of patrons by putting them in the crossfire of their own um, class identity between work and leisure. The circus transformed into a modern corporation through these strikes, and they subsequently lost much of their enchantment, but rather than simply a decreasingly relevant site of American leisure and culture, instead these big top shows represent an evolving example of worker and employee relationships in developing corporations.
1: That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can help folks find the show by liking it in your podcast app or passing it along. It's also really helpful if you leave a review. Special thanks this week to John Beck, who organizes the fabulous Our Daily Work, Our Daily Live series, a cooperative project of the Michigan Traditional Arts Program and the Labor Education Program, at MSU's School of Human Resources and Labor Relations. We've got links to the MSU Museum, the Labor Education Program, and to Andrea Ringer's complete Zoom presentation, which has lots and lots of great images. As always, thanks to Labor History in Two, a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pauzak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history, and see you next time.